You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. As I'm recording this, I am going to get my first vaccination shot this afternoon. I'm really excited. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm also scared about what the next six months, what the next year could look like. I guess I'm dealing with the fact, continuing to deal with all of the unknowns of this time. The fact that even with these shots, there's still so much we don't know about what's going to happen. We don't know about when a vaccination for kids will be available, which would give me a lot of peace of mind to know that our entire family, our entire household is vaccinated. Um, What's happening with all the variants that are present in New York and in New England and all over the country now, there's just still a lot of unknowns and about when we're really going to be able to beat this thing. So I am cautiously optimistic. I am trying to be okay with not knowing, continued not knowing. What a lesson. What a lesson. I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're getting your vaccination soon or you already have. And I'm excited to tell you about my guest today. It's Sarah Kenny. She is a longtime theater educator with a focus towards accessibility, disability inclusion, and is currently working on her master's in disability studies at CUNY School of Professional Studies. Sarah and I overlapped during our time in undergrad at the University of Evansville and have kept in touch during our lives in New York City. Our kids are just about the same age. I was excited to speak with her about how her own disability has clarified her view on where she wants her work to focus, being an artist parent, and growing inclusion in the arts. I hope you enjoy the 173rd episode of The Compass. interpret that however you like it's a little different for everyone what they picture when they hear me say the dark side yeah I mean I feel like the dark side for me and the work that I do is is when I lose sight of the why of the why we do what we do if we let egos get in the way or like get wrapped up in office politics or things that just don't matter mm-hmm. really then that's where I'm, I feel like I'm headed toward the dark side and really the I think the fastest cure for that is to get back to the root of why we do this and for me that is either seeing some really great theater whether that's like adults on Broadway <laughs> <laughs> or um or like third graders Um, rehearsing the Lion King in their school, or even just, you know, the tiny moments of success in the work that we do. Yeah, and I think even, I mean, seeing theater obviously is is a great (laughs) tool for overcoming the dark side, but also just like the tiny moments of joy in the work, like seeing a (laughs) elementary school gym teacher embrace his artistry as a choreographer you know (laughs) or like just seeing the pride on parents and family members faces when they come see their students perform like those little things are are what fill me up probably more than anything else 
And I think then also another big piece of fighting the dark side is having some separation between work and home, which obviously was like thrown out the window (laughs) with COVID. (laughs) Um, But that used to be really hard for me. I think a lot of us as artists and theater makers like live our work and it defines us often. And I um, struggled with that a little bit. And when I had my daughter, Olive, there was sort of this like awakening of like, oh, you can have more to your life than just work. (laughs) In fact, it can be really great. Yeah. So like coming home to her every day just forces me to give her my focus instead of still ruminating on whatever, you know, I left at the office. Yeah. And I think in the arts, especially that kind of singular focus or almost workaholism is so encouraged and like glamorized (laughs) that it's hard to fight against it. It really is. Yeah. And I, and I think in the, the education space too. I like, I always (laughs) joke that like the harder I work, the more young people have access to jazz hands. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and like, um, so there's this real pressure of like, you know, the amount of work I do is, is sort of determined by me, um, and how we operate our programming. And so there is that, that push and pull of like wanting to do the best work possible for the most people possible, but also, (laughs) not running myself into the ground in the process. Right. Um, how are you doing right now? How has the last year been for you? Can you tell us a little bit about where you are with your work and what you're focusing on right now? Yeah. Um, it's been a, it's been a hard year, to be honest. I mean, that's obviously true for everyone. Um, but for someone who is so deeply connected to my work, um, I am on furlough and have been since July. Right. And um, just for people listening, you were, do you want to just tell them where you were working? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm the senior manager of education and audience engagement for Disney Theatrical Group. And along with so much of the theater industry, um, DTG had to furlough a lot of their employees, um, and I was included in that. So I have not been working for eight months now, Wow, um, which is just like impossibly hard. Um, the, you know, the bright side is obviously I get all this time with my daughter, which is amazing. Um, and I'm also getting my second master's right now. Um, so I have grad school to fill my brain up and keep me, keep me distracted (laughs) from wondering when I'm going to go back to work. And was that something (laughs) that you decided to pivot to when the furlough happened or was that already on your mind? It was already on my mind. I actually had already started before the pandemic hit. Um, I, I took one class in the spring of last year just to see if I could swing it, if I could, you know, manage school and being a mom and being, you know, having a full-time job, um, and managing my health and all of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, so now, now are you doing that program full-time virtually? I'm just doing two classes at a time because, um, and, and, you know, 
my caretaker for my daughter. Yeah. So it's still a lot to, to manage. Um, so it's, it's a good balance of, of using my brain for half the day, focusing on schoolwork and then using my brain to play with my daughter the rest of the day. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Um, tell me about the program that you chose. Sure. So I'm, I'm studying disability studies at CUNY School for Professional Studies, and it is a, is a bit of a shift from the path that I was on, which I can talk a little bit about, um, if that's interesting. Yes, it's all to interesting you. to me. <laughs> um, so my, my whole career path has been in education, starting at 16 when I choreographed the production of Annie <laughs> um, for 100 kids. Oh my um, gosh. Between the ages of eight and 18. It was pure madness. Um, and this was in Illinois, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I remember on opening night during the curtain call and just like seeing the beams of pride from those kids, I realized in that moment, like, oh, oh, that's what I want to do. I don't want to do this for myself. I want to facilitate that opportunity for others to discover their own capacities and to discover their own artistry. And so from a pretty young age, I decided that education was what I wanted to do. It's what I got my bachelor's in at University of Evansville. I ended up getting a master's in it as well at City College um, and have spent my entire career dedicated to that. And then in the last several years, my, my focus has just slowly started to shift a bit toward inclusion, specifically disability inclusion. Um, and, and it's really, it feels like a very organic shift for me. Like my focus in education has always been inclusion and equity. My, my goal is to make the arts as equitable for young people as possible. Um, there's a lot of disparity in our country for who has access and when and to what quality, etc. So like, there's there's a thematic <laughs> shift there that makes sense to me. But also, um, just out of college, I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, um, which is a inflammatory joint disease. Um, it's autoimmune, it's degenerative. Um, and so over time, that has played a bigger and bigger role in my personal life. Um, and so, you know, in my work in various places, I was always attuned to accessibility and to inclusion, but hadn't fully lived it for myself until the last few years, or at least fully lived the impact of it. Um, and I remember I went to see a, a production on Broadway one night. Um, I happened to be four months pregnant. I happened to have... Um, a lot of inflammation in my hip that day. So it, stairs weren't something I could do easily. And I got to the theater, my usual, like, five minutes before curtain. <laughs> <laughs> um, because that's what you do. Um, and discovered that my seat was in the balcony and that there was no elevator in the theater. Um, and it was, I mean, it feels like a inciting incident for everything that I've done since then. Because I just had this moment of feeling just stunned by my exclusion, really. And like feeling that, I don't know if you feel this way, Leah, but like when I walk into a theater, even if it's one I've never been into, there's this sense of familiarity mm -hmm. and home 
and like you belong there. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I never like that I always took for granted, never really thought about. And in that moment that that feeling of belonging went away mm-hmm. and I was like, Oh, Oh, I wasn't thought of. And of course, like I could have done my research and found out there was no elevator and made arrangements, but I was new a little bit to my changing mobility. So it just wasn't on my mind. Um, and I'm not proud of how <laughs> I handled myself that night. I didn't feel like I had the agency to talk to the front of house staff. Um, I was aware that because I have an invisible disability that it may not appear as if stairs are nothing I can do. And so I did the like one step at a time, only using my left leg up all 86 oh stairs to the balcony. <laughs> and I missed the overture. I was in so much pain and was so uncomfortable and just sat there just sort of a little destroyed for the beginning of that show and couldn't really focus. And I took that feeling and realized that this is a feeling that a lot of people feel all the dang time. And I always understood that, like, theoretically, but it's a very different thing to live it. Um, And so pretty much from that night on, I started slowly shifting my work at Disney toward accessibility and taking the reins Mm. of our inclusion efforts as it relates to audiences with disabilities, how we represent disability on our stage, if we do, um, and you know, making sure our office was as inclusive as possible for employees as well. Um, and I found I really liked it. <laughs> I really enjoyed that work. Um, and so about a year ago, I decided um, to go and pursue my master's um, and getting more involved in volunteer opportunities. I'm on the board of National Disability Theater. I'm on the steering committee of the Museum Arts and Culture Access Consortium. So just trying to absorb um, and be of service as much as I possibly can. It's just so wonderful to hear of you having having a connection to something, having an experience, and following the impulse. I feel like so many of us either aren't in the place where we're able to follow those impulses when they happen or when they do, like that's when it really is like a clear moment in your life. And so it's, it's wonderful to hear that you're in a place where you've been able to follow that impulse and it's all clicking is to something that you have a passion about and that you care about and you're able to integrate into your, your work life. Cause that's also something like um, for a lot of artists, we might have those moments of something that like, Oh, this is something I really want to work for it gives me fuel but they might not be able to find a way to make it be their living as well you know so I'm so glad that I mean we'll see what you decide to do with your next steps but the fact that you're able to start exploring it in your current position is great yeah well and I, I will say that's one of the great things about working for Disney is that they respect and honor smart people um and if you can make a good case for why something should be um, you will often find support. So obviously not always true in every situation, but I've been lucky to be really supported in that. But I think that like that idea of just following the impulse or going with the flow um, is, this is going to sound really cheesy, but honestly, I think it's something that arthritis taught me mm. for, you know, part of like the way my body works is that it's different every day 
and it can be different hour to hour and there's absolutely no predicting what's going to happen. You know, so I could wake up and have some difficulty walking as I start my day or I could not and I could feel great. And for a long time, I fought that. (laughs) I resisted that and was angry about that unpredictability Mm -hmm. um, and then found that really not productive (laughs) Um, and eventually just tried to learn to like let let go and take literally every moment as it comes and I think that has bled into other parts of my life and helped me have a lot of patience and <laughs> I was gonna say roll with the punches and honestly I feel like it prepared me for this in some ways this the situation yeah. we're in that like I don't have control and the best I can do is just lightly guide my circumstances to the best of my ability that looking for a sense of control is such a huge thing for so many of us and it's really a false you know a false narrative Especially like becoming Absolutely. a parent too. I have to remind myself. Oh, you think, totally. you think you have so much control and it's like, no, no. You totally you don't. don't. They have so much control over your yeah. day. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited for you. That's really lovely. Um, in your work with Disney before the pandemic, did you, um, how much of your time did you get to spend like in the fields, like you were talking about witnessing the teachers and the kids and the parents and how much of it was kind of spent at your desk, at your computer. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of ebb and flow really depending on the time of year and what our, our programming was doing. Um, but I spent very little time at my desk. I spent most of my time collaborating with other people, um, you know, advising people who are working on our program throughout the country visiting schools when I can, which sometimes is hard to do in New York City. I would always call it like the five borough tour <laughs> when, when we go, you know, where you, you start your day in Queens, you go to Manhattan, mm-hmm. then you go to Brooklyn and then Staten Island and then back to Queens at some point. Um, <laughs> so just like straight up the time it takes to get to the school <laughs> is a thing in New York City. Um, I'm always jealous of our, our partners that work on our program, like in Nashville, where they just get in their car mm-hmm. and in seven minutes they're out of school. Anyway. Um, With a parking lot. Yeah, I do feel like. <laughs> you don't have to look yes. for parking. Oh my gosh. <laughs> totally. Um, but you know, I felt, I felt really lucky in that, um, there, there was a lot of creativity in my job. You know, I got, I get to work on the shows we put together for young people to license, um, and I find that there's a lot of creativity in accessibility work too. You know, it's all about finding a solution that works for as many people as possible. And, and when you're, um, you know, thinking about disability, there's often conflicting needs, and so there's this like flexibility and innovation that's necessary to, to truly center access. Um, and one of the things that I um, am excited about and, and want to pursue further <laughs> once I'm back in my job and able to do so is how to, how to think about access, not as this necessary utility, which it is, right? It's, it's necessary for making our, our work accessible to people, but to not to think of it just as this device or this add-on or this afterthought, but for it to feel like an integrated part of the artistry and of the storytelling. So, for example, all of our shows have audio description. Mm -hmm. 
for guests who are blind or have low vision, um, where they can pick up a headset or use their phones um, and plug into an audio recording that's describing the visual elements of the show. Um, and one of the things I was working on before I left was how can we re-envision this audio description to really feel a part of the show? And, you know, of course, audio description needs to be the facts and it has to be, um, you know, fit between dialogue. So you can't go on and on and on. Um, but I made sure to incorporate ideas from our designers, um, ideas from the director, etc., that we provided to um, the folks who are trained to write our audio description. And then we were working on having um, folks connected to the show record the audio description so it feels like a seamless part of the storytelling. Right. And that's just one tiny thing we can do. Um, and that's what I'm excited about continuing exploring. Like how can we how can we think of that when the show's in development? Not once, you know, oh, we've made it through opening night and it's frozen, so now we can add these things. But how can we think of it from the beginning? Yeah, that's so exciting. And it seems so um, intuitive and it makes so much sense. But of course, if it was just, you know, somebody who was paid to record it who had nothing to do with the show, it would feel completely different. Totally. And I think so much of like this type of innovation is only possible when you have disabled people in the mm -hmm. room. Um, and so like when I had that experience at um, a show where I, 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 there was no elevator, at that point I wasn't identifying as disabled and was I kept sort of <laughs> I would use so many words to describe myself I'd be like I dance between worlds and sometimes I have physical limitations and sometimes I don't and yeah um <laughs> <laughs> and I think like some of that hesitation to identify was internalized ableism like not understanding what disability is um and fear of folks not understanding invisible disability etc anyway but embracing that part of my identity allowed me to connect with so many people in the disability community that I'm so grateful for um, and now can bring those connections to my work, um, can hopefully employ more disabled people um, in my work um, and try to advocate better than I was before when I was like, oh, well, I'm not really a part of that com community. Right. But once I embrace that it totally it totally changed my approach um and and what I was able to offer do you mind if I ask um I've seen you post a little bit on Instagram about how you talk about your disability with Olive and I was wondering yeah. if you wouldn't mind telling me a little bit about how you're feeling that out I'm so curious because I'm also realizing just through talking with you um my dad has like very extreme arthritis and I honestly don't even know the correct terminology of his diagnosis because he's extremely, he describes himself as an extremely private person in a lot of different ways. But he also just, I think his approach when we were kids was just like to not to talk about the fact that he was in pain, which, yeah. so I was always aware of it, but it also probably led to a lot of misunderstandings about maybe why he was being so short with us or like wasn't in a great place with us as kids was probably because he was dealing with a lot of pain, but, but it just wasn't talked about. And so when I saw you post about um, how you were communicating with Olive about it, it just made me really curious and hopeful about what that relationship can be for you guys. Yeah, 
for sure. And it's definitely something I'm <laughs> discovering as I go along. But something I've, I've realized over the last few years is that there, there is a lot of hesitancy to talk about our health and to, especially about talking about pain. I think it makes people uncomfortable mm-hmm. to hear about someone else's pain. And that led me to not talk about it for a really long time and always pretend, you know, mask, <laughs> mask my pain um, for the, the sake of other people. And I realized that that just perpetuates the problem. And obviously, like everyone is entitled to their own approach to their health and, and how they want to talk about it. And I, I respect that. But for me, I realized there's a lot of unknown. And unless we talk about it, um, we're going to continue that cycle of, you know, lack of knowledge leading to fear, leading to exclusion. Um, and so I try to break that down for myself. And then somewhere along the line, I realized that needed to apply to my daughter. And I think part of that came from being her, being full-time mom instead of, you know, being a working mom during the pandemic. Um, because being a mom to a toddler is an extremely physical yes. job. <laughs> and it can be it can be really, really hard on my body. And for a while, I felt a lot of guilt about that. Um, and and then I realized like, oh no, I just need to talk to her about it <laughs> and let her understand um, as you know, in the simplest of terms that she can understand. But I always try to not, underestimate um her capacity for understanding and empathy Mm -hmm. um and so you know I'll just say very simple things like oh mama mama really needs to rest right now my body is very tired or I'll you know I'll say oh mama's thumbs aren't working today I'm gonna (laughs) she often has to like climb up my arm from the crib (laughs) because when you don't it is really hard not to have either of your thumbs functioning (laughs) with a how many pounds is she? She's so heavy. I can't remember now, but it's a lot. She's a heavy, she, <laughs> she's three feet tall. Um, so, you know, it's a thing. So she'll like climb up my arm. Or I think the the story you may be referencing is the other day, again, both of my thumbs were inflamed and getting her into her car seat is just like a comedic affair. I almost always bonk her head, which I think is true for anyone. I car definitely do that. <laughs> <laughs> But like I bonked her head, but also because I can't use my thumbs, I often just have to sort of like dump her a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> so she was like, whoa, mama, that was bumpy out of my head. And like, she's fine. My, my daughter's fine, to be clear. Um, and I, I said, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, mama's thumbs hurt today. Um, or I think I said my hands hurt today. So that makes me a bit clumsy. How about mama kisses your head? And she said, okay. And I kiss your hands. Um, oh <laughs> I know. Gosh. And like, I wish I could communicate the intensity with which she wanted to make sure yeah. that I felt okay. And she grabbed both of my cheeks and sort of shook them a little <laughs> and was like, I love you, mama. You okay. You feel better after nap time. I'm just going to start crying like, right know. now. <laughs> Maybe I do need a nap. <laughs> that is so sweet. But like, I, I know. And I'm just so stunned by... You know, I think what she's doing is repeating back what she sees us do for her. Mm-hmm. Um, like one specific thing she does a lot when she sees me in pain 
is she reminds me to breathe, but we have this specific breathing technique um, that I do with her called a zipper breath, where you like pretend to zip up a coat while you breathe in and then zip down as you breathe out. Um, and sometimes if I, if I like bang a joint that's currently inflamed, I, I like cannot describe how painful it is. It's like a stub toe times a hundred. And so, like, I generally try not to make a big deal out of pain when it happens, but when something like that happens, like, there, right. there's, there's, <laughs> there's no, no controlling. it. <laughs> there's no, like, I have no control of what, what comes out of my mouth. Um, but she'll always go, breathe, mama, breathe. And on my body, she'll do a little zipper breath. And it's just, it, like, centers me immediately. I'm like, thank you. Well, especially, um, you know, kids this age and their parents and especially their moms a lot of times, like kids are so like physically in tuned with you, you know, there's just still that they're just starting to have the like separation to think of themselves as a separate person from you. So I'm sure she's so in tuned with your facial expressions and your just the vibe you're giving off when you're feeling differently that day yeah well and like and not just understanding me like I think about it not just about you know her understanding what's happening with my body but also I want that to apply how she sees everyone around her um and can you know have that understanding that like everybody's got something going different going on with their minds and their bodies and our job is to find out how we can best support them Um, and that, like, if I can teach her anything, (laughs) that's all (laughs) I want. That's my, my biggest hope is that she can be in tune to what other people need, not see it as something bad, perhaps as something different, but just seeing it as like, okay, how, what can I do to, to better communicate with you or to better be in this space with you? So you feel happy and comfortable. That is a beautiful, clear goal. That's wonderful. (laughs) And, and I think that's, that should humans, adult humans need that. Yes. Too. Yes. Um, remind me what your husband does for his career. He, he does a lot of things. Um, he, he works for a polyvinyl record label, which is an independent record label based here in Illinois, where we are currently hiding out from the pandemic. Um, and he does sales and distribution but he's also an artist. He um, was and is a musician. He had a band when we first mm-hmm. met. <laughs> they played at Evansville. <laughs> um, at oh gosh, now I can't remember if that the name of that festival. But oh, the anyway, fall festival. Played, I, was, I was very excited. No, it was the one at the end of the year, and I can't remember no, I what it's called. Anyway, um, and he writes, um, dabbles in in real estate here and there, so. He's, he's very much a, a creative person in, in trying to find new ways to, um, you know, grow. We don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but I'm curious about how you two have found to best support each other since becoming parents and, like, if that was a, a big decision about when to have a kid um, because you're kind of both in – artistic areas and if you've found a way to support your creativity after having a child. Totally. 
um, it's a, it's a conversation we had for sure. Um, and I think it's a constant struggle as parents to find that balance of family time versus, you know, time for yourself versus time for your creativity, which I think need to be two things. Um, and as far as when we had a kid, that wasn't necessarily totally planned. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was like lightly planned, but um, it was a, as a wee bit of a surprise to me. Um, but I think that was the best thing possible. I had lots of concerns about my health going into it. So I'm sort of glad that it just happened mm-hmm. and I didn't have time to get anxious about it. Um, and then we, oh gosh, we, um, we actually like wrote a, not a manifesto. I'm trying to remember what we called it, but we like wrote some guidelines for ourselves as parents and what kinds of parents we wanted to be and how that would look in different settings, which I think was really useful to get us on the same page from the beginning um, and make him feel like an active part in that. Because I think with my background in education, there, there's a bit of a like, assuming I would know all the things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, when my training is actually five and up, not zero to five. Um, it's all the same, right? Like, I got it when she's five, but <laughs> there's a lot of other things happening in the brain um, before then. Um, so so that was a, a nice way to sort of set the tone. Um, and then we just we just try to support each other having that time for creativity, like for markets writing or sometimes just um, it's a drum pad. Like if he can just like go be in a quiet room and drum for an hour, that's really useful for him. And for me, um, totally disconnected to my work, um, I enjoy watercolor and pie baking, <laughs> um, which are two very different things, but like they're both meditative for me. Um, and with watercolor, again, this is probably going to sound cheesy, but this like idea that I embraced with arthritis of that, like I don't have control is the same um, concept with water, watercolor for anyone who does it. I don't really know what I'm doing. I just pretend like I do. Um, <laughs> but because water is an element within the, the painting and water kind of goes where it wants to go. Right. Um, you have to surrender a little bit to it. And again, like guide it as best you can, but also just accept what the water does and enjoy the beauty of, of what it does. Um, so it feels very, I don't know, symbiotic with our Mm -hmm. current place in the world (laughs) and also just with the way I live my life so we'll say to each other like I need some I need to paint or I need two hours to bake a pie um and we'll or you know whatever he needs to do with writing and we'll make that space for each other that's great I feel like I'm still I feel like I'm still struggling to find the time for myself since having Sassy because sometimes it's like oh I I got the time for myself and I need I need to work out for my mental health and for my body so that time goes to that and then it's like well that wasn't really what I I needed that too but it wasn't really what I needed for my artist self you know totally I've, I've tried to start thinking about it within like week increments instead of in the day or like whatever length of time helps mm-hmm. of like making sure you have some time for that and I can tell like if I haven't had a moment <laughs> to paint or to bake a pie in over 10 days, like my, my mood. <laughs> I have less tolerance for things. I'm like, Oh, I need to um, step away and just go do something creative and solely for myself. 
yeah, um, to restore a little bit. How has your sense of community changed this year being with your family? Do you feel like it's changed your parenting or do you guys have a big community that you lean on here in New York City as well? Um, that's a great question. You know, we, we certainly have great friends in New York, um, but a lot of them aren't parents. Um, and so they're, it's not like we were having a lot of play dates or things like that um, when we were back in New York. Um, and so we didn't have like that much regular support um, on the day to day and living right now we're living with my parents. Um, and we all sort of made the choice to try because we're going to be here for such an extended period of time to try as much as possible not to disrupt each family's um, way of going about their days. So I sort of go about each day as if I'm not going to have any support Mm. from my parents. Obviously they will step up if they need to, but I never wanted to get into a place where they were co-parenting and having to like feel that weight, um, you know, when they want to live their own lives and, um, you know, they both have jobs, although my dad just retired. Um, so they have a lot going on too. So we try to have this, like, we're all obviously, you know, having dinner together every night and and we're in the same space, but trying not to, um, disrupt (laughs) (laughs) too much. But what has been really wonderful, especially for Olive, is that we've been able to have a slightly expanded bubble, um, because my sister and her husband and their three children are here. Mm. Um, so we see them at least every Sunday and it's been so good for Olive to have that social interaction. And I remember, oh gosh, when we first got here in July, it had been four months since Olive had really interacted with anyone besides me and Mark. Um, and when we got to my parents' house, my sister and Olive's cousins were already there, which was a surprise. Um, and Olive was like, what? Yeah. Who are all these humans? And, like, she she's not a super affectionate baby. Like, she likes to have her space, and she will come to you when she wants physical touch. Um, and so already that element is in play. And then there were all these people. And my family was so great. Like, they know Olive, and they knew to give her space as she warmed up. Um, and they, um, I I just remember her kind of observing everything and then looking at, um, her cousin Juliana, who's six, and she just like sort of petted her arm and then looked at me and goes, happy, I'm happy. And I was like, ah, (laughs) okay, baby, Uh. we'll be here for a while. Um, so in that way, like her sense of community has grown so much. Um, which, which is what I'm doing it for more than anything else. You know, I did not plan to live with my parents at 35. (laughs) Nobody, nobody did. (laughs) It it gives her the the opportunity to have other people to grow with. And I think it's critical for her right now. That went back. Yeah. In the spring and summer last year, I think when Ceci was younger, she could just tell that, you know, we wanted her to stay away from people at the park and stuff. And so there was one instance where like a, a, kid younger than her kind of like toddled up to her and she was scared you could tell she was like she like was clinging to Frankie and was kind of like scared of this kid and that that was frightening for me for a little while but I think she's kind of over that now and now she's just like really eager 
she's really curious and eager yeah. about other kids. So hopefully when it's safe, she's going to be so ready, so ready for playdates. <laughs> so ready. So yeah. ready. And and kids are so resilient and their brains are so plastic at this, at this yeah. point in their development that there, there is still so much time um, yeah. for that social development. Are there any lessons that you've learned in the last couple of years that you're really proud of that you would want to share? It can be something small or big. I think I've, I've, I've grown into myself a lot over the last few years. I don't know if you felt this way after becoming a mom, but there was this just self-assurance that I think came after having Olive of, you know, I had a really rough (laughs) birth Mm -hmm. delivery, um, and recovery and, um, some scary health stuff around it. And I sort of felt coming out of that, well, like if I can do any, if I can do that, I can do literally anything. And this, this new sense of confidence, um, which came at a really useful moment in my life when I was learning how to come into my identity as a disabled woman and how to talk about that and how to talk about it in scary places, (laughs) like with executive leadership and, um, in public forums and even with my family who, who maybe never understood disability Mm -hmm. in that way. Um, and with my friends and, and so there, it sort of fueled my advocacy and my, um, I don't know, ability to just look at things from as many lenses as possible. Um, yeah. And I think with Olive, Olive has, um, some sensory sensitivities that we're, that we're still exploring and learning about, and she's really young. Um, so, that has also just taught me so much about listening to a person for all that they are, right? And like you can see in Olive's eyes or in her body movement um, what she's feeling or what she's needing. Um, and so, really trying to approach all of my interactions with curiosity which I think is something that as a society we are like severely lacking right now. And I think that lack of curiosity is what leads to a lot of our problems. Um, And so I'm trying to like test myself in situations where I disagree with someone or I would do something differently or whatever that might be to try to approach it with curiosity. doesn't mean I will always understand, Mm. but to just like have that opportunity to, consider what else a person might be thinking or, or going through or feeling right. in a moment. Right. I don't know. Those are two very disconnected no, things, but I, love um, I feel like those are two big shifts in the last year or so. Those are really good reminders. And I do feel like it's such a an interesting lesson being around a little kid in rediscovering that curiosity in yourself because it's just, it's just there. They, they, as a survival mechanism, they have to be curious and it just makes you think like, oh, when did I lose that? Or how can I, how can I read? I used to have it. So how can I tap into it again? Yeah. And and I feel like that's where it comes back to the arts too. And, and what fuels my work, there's, you know, there is that loss of curiosity and that loss of play that happens as we start to become more socially aware. And so how can 
the arts, if they are strategically timed <laughs> in a child's development, intervene to to give that sense of creativity and play a, um, a high value, right? Because like, I feel like socially yeah. it's devalued. Mm-hmm. And so if being in the school play in fourth grade is the cool thing to do, like, can we keep doing that? Um, and maintain that sense of, of creativity and curiosity Yeah, as a young person that. develops. Um, there are two small questions that I always ask at the end, but before I do, is there anything that you would really wanted to talk about that I didn't bring up? I mean, if it's interesting, we could talk more about disability in the arts. Um, you know, I, like thinking about representation, mm-hmm. thinking about like the path forward with inclusion and what that might look like. I've mentioned this in conversations about all of the protests from the summer and hoping that with the theater community, that this pause will lead to coming back in a new place. Hopefully it can be something similar with the work that you're doing. It's that like this pause can really make things jump ahead a lot further. That's definitely, that's definitely my hope too. And it's, it's, you know, it's tricky, some of these conversations, um, especially with everything that's happening in the world. Um, You know, when we talk about disability, or when we talk about one particular set of identity, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's always a, a trap to fall in of oppression Olympics, or like, pay attention to this, you know, this piece too. Um, when really, I feel like they're all actually the same effort. Um, and if we can align um, for some collective activism, um, I think we will we will be much better off. But there is there is so much work to do, and like to not again to try not to fall into the oppression Olympics trap. Something I've been thinking about a lot when these conversations of equity and diversity and inclusion come up, and disability is often not a part of the conversation. And I've been trying to understand why and really reflect on that. And something that I've landed on and (laughs) I'll try out for you and see what you think (laughs) is, is I, (laughs) I think that ableism is so pervasive that people still view disability as a defect Mm. rather than a dimension of disability or dimension of diversity. Um, And I think combining that, you know, however unconscious it may be, combining that um, way of thinking with the fact that disability is often acquired and not, you know, something that people are born with, though obviously there are, um, but the vast majority of people with disabilities acquire them Mm -hmm. later in life. Um, And the fact that a lot of disabilities are invisible, I think it just is less present in mind. Um, and that plays out. It plays out in the way we see representation on our stages and in film, et cetera. You know, there's a, the Rudiman Family Foundation put together a report, uh, like, I don't know, four or five years ago. You know, we have 20% of people in this country have disabilities and only like fewer than 2%, I think it was, um, characters in um, TV have disabilities. And of that 2%, only 5% of them are played by disabled actors, mm. which is staggering, yeah. right? So when you think about that, we've got a long way to go. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that you're right, that there is an opportunity right now to, to think about that. Um, but you know, to reference something I said earlier, I feel like it has to be thought of from the beginning of a process and has to be baked into the fabric of an institution, right. of an organization, of a show in order for it to be done well. And what a unique position in the theater or in TV and film to be able to reflect those stories and to amplify those stories Absolutely. in addition to all the things you're thinking about, about just including the audience so completely. Um, but in the story yeah. itself as well. Well, especially since disability really is something that is or will affect all of us. You know, it, it really is a universal truth. And, you know, I, I, I would imagine that literally everyone knows or is close to someone with a disability if they don't um, have one themselves. And they may acquire one in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. So, um I feel like it is universal and I hope that we can see more of that. Are there any resources that you find really helpful to educate if people want to learn more about the work that you're talking about or just the community in general? Is there anything that you would point them towards that you find useful? Yeah. I mean, I think Sins and Ballad is doing really wonderful work in this space. They, are sort of the original thinkers behind disability justice and the way we think and talk about it. Um, I think following people like Alice Wong, um, who has a podcast and a book all about disability and that really centers um, BIPOC and queer disabled people. I think just like getting yourself in spaces where you're interacting with more disabled people and more multiply marginalized people is a great way to learn. the Disability Visibility book, I highly recommend. Mm. Um, it's all short essays by BIPOC and queer disabled folks. Um, so you get a really wide a range of, of perspectives, which is great. Um, and then like here in NYC, MAC, which is the Museum Arts and Culture Access Consortium, is a great resource. We have workshops, etc. It's really designed for folks who are in administrative positions at cultural institutions, but we also aim to support artists. Um, I'm sure I would think of more. That's awesome. No, that's a great <laughs> list to start with. Thank we... you. Yeah, of course. If you are feeling like you're kind of in that dark space or feeling down or unmotivated or unconnected, are there any tangible things that you reach for again and again that will help you get out of it, like a book you reread or music you listen to or something that you just know is going to help? Yeah. I think taking a walk outside always helps me clear my mind. Um, especially in the middle of the work day. <laughs> Sometimes I found that like, if I just go do that at 11am, um, before I get too wrapped up in things, um, I can have a, a clearer day. Is your office in um, Times Square? What? <laughs> there are paths. Get to Bryant Park. Get to Bryant Park. Exactly. <laughs> If I go out 41st Street, stage door, exit, then I can just like make a beeline for Bryant Park and walk around it and it's a little less wild. That's how, it. Just <laughs> just talking about Times Square right now feels so exotic to me because I honestly have only been into Manhattan like three times in the last year. Isn't it wild? That's it's wild. so strange. We, we went in like October or November 
um, we, when we were back in New York for a short period of time, because I wanted to be in the city for the election, um, we took Olive to Times Square, um, and walked around and it was just, it was surreal. And I didn't, I didn't know how hard it was going to hit me. (laughs) I just thought we were going for a family walk. Um, but to see all the, all the closed theaters and to see the Mm -hmm. spaces that were my home every day, um, was hard. So I look forward to seeing them active again. Very soon. I will, I will miss that bustle. I might even miss the Elmo. Um, and then the last question is, is there any piece of art of, um, any kind that you've consumed recently that you want to recommend? Um, oh gosh, I have been obsessed with watching clips of Alice Shepard and her choreography mm. and her dance work. Alice um, is one of the co-founders, I hope I'm not misspeaking, of Kinetic Light Theater. I think that's right. Or Kinetic Light Dance, I may be saying it wrong. Um, but she's a wheelchair user and she um, is a beautiful dancer and explores like different dimensions she swings from the air like it's just stunning work and very soothing to watch I can't wait um yes go look her up on Instagram she just recently posted a new clip um and take a deep dive on her website too Sarah thank you so much this was really such a pleasure I appreciate your time For listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of the Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the compass podcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please review and follow in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brendan Spieth, audio assistance from Monic Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.